Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I'm your host, Dro Rarusi, Senior Director of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. At the American Sephardi Federation, we try to see beyond the Ashkenazi world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today, we're really delighted to speak with Dr. Odette Zinger. Dr. Zinger is a senior lecturer at the Department of Jewish History and Contemporary Jewelry at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He studies the history of Jews in the medieval Islamic world, mostly through the documents of the Cairo Gnizot. Having trained at both Princeton and Jerusalem, after the completion of his doctoral thesis, he was a Perlman postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Jewish Studies at Duke University, a member of a research group on the cultural capital of Jewish women at the Israel Institute for Advanced Studies, and a fellow at the Martin Buber Society at the Hebrew University. His research combines philological um, study of Geniza documents together with social and cultural history. Today, we will be speaking about his book, Living with the Law, Gender and Community Among the Jews of Medieval Egypt, University of Pennsylvania Press, 2023. That was a long interview, but we're gonna still ask you some questions too. Don't worry, then long introduction, sorry. So welcome Dr. Zinger, and thank you for joining us here today. Good morning, thank you for having me. Great. so, like I said, I just gave a pretty good background, but tell us a little bit about your personal story, who you are, a little bit why you call it uh, Genizot also. So that was a lot of questions altogether, but you call it the Kaimio Genizot, and also a little bit about your personal background. Okay, so uh, I'm a social historian, which means I'm, I'm committed to the recovery of realities of everyday life, ordinary people, so not just the kings or the great intellectuals of the past. And my research focuses on issues of gender and law, both separately and together. So basically, I started out, you know, in physics, uh, realized that I actually, my heart is in history, and I wanted to do sort of intellectual history of the 20th century, Adorno, Olkamer, and so forth. But I learned Arabic uh, as an undergraduate in Princeton, and uh, very soon the sort of the world of Arabic sort of captured me. Um, and... Uh, and I wanted to do sort of early Islamic history, like everybody does. Um, but then I heard about uh, the Cairo Giza, and I was in a long-distance relationship at the time, and I was sort of uh, so fascinated with reading letters of, you know, letters of a wife to her husband who was, you know, trading in India, or a letter of uh, a father to his son, and, and, and you know, people. Uh, lives through letters, and it was easier for me because you know I had Hebrew and I had Arabic, so Judeo Arabic, and I can explain what Judeo Arabic is later. Uh, so I sort of ended up working on Jews, working on the Cairo Ginizot, which I'll explain later. Uh, but that's how I got started, and my research is a lot about gender and law. So um, basically, I started out uh, being interested with women uh, and the experiences of women and and medieval Egypt, then I realized that, I, you know, most of our sources about women are legal sources. So, you know, when they came to court, so I became very interested in how the court worked, you know, how, do these, how, how does law functions? And in recent years, I tried to sort of leave the court behind, but they keep dragging me back. <laughs> um, so I'm, you know, one interested in issues of gen- not, you know, gender, not just about women, is also about men. And I'm trying to think about, you know, men as men, you know, usually every, a lot of history is about men, right? Right. They're not thought of as men. 
And so I've been working a lot about uh, conceptions of masculine conceptions and practices of masculinity. What did it mean to be a Jewish man in medieval Egypt? Uh, so that was a bit about me. I also maintain, I have to say, a keen interest in literature. Uh, and I tried to combine social history with literary text. So not just what people did, but also the ideas that gave meanings to their lives. Excellent. That was great. Uh, I want to go back, though. The word genizot, can you... Uh... Okay. So the geniza, this is like a whole spiel that could be a, an interview in itself. But basically, the, the Cairo geniza uh, is the most important source for Jewish life in the Middle Ages. According to Jewish law, you're not supposed to dispense or throw away into the garbage, which is a form of disrespect, the sort of sacred name of God. Um, so, you know, Jews, even today, they sort of, usually they bury the texts that have, that are considered sacred, usually in a cemetery, like a human body. But for some reason, uh, in Egypt, uh, for reasons we do not completely understand, uh, the sort of central Jewish community in Fustat, which is the capital of Egypt at the time, uh, that sort of developed later into uh, to Cairo. Uh, they, instead of putting uh, their writings into the cemetery, they put them in the synagogue. So then that kept them much better. The other thing is that they didn't just put sacred text, but basically every day, uh, basically almost everything that was written, right? Because even in a simple letter, you start with, you know, you, you say the word in the name of God, uh, and so these texts uh, were preserved. So the and the numbers are just staggering, right? We're talking about two hundred fifty thousand items, about three quarters of a million pages, because some items are just tiny, tiny fragments. Some items can be a hundred pages. Um, and so the old understanding of the Kyrogeniza are documents that were found in a sort of attic of a particular synagogue, the Benazar synagogue, if it's that, by Schechter you know, aided by the two Scottish, famous Scottish sisters. Uh, in recent years, and now I'm... I just want to give a plug here. Anybody who doesn't know that story should definitely go back and read it. Like Oded said, we're not going to go into the whole background, but it's a fascinating story. Yeah, I can really recommend the book Sacred Trash by Adina Hoffman and Peter Paul. It's just a wonderful, riveting tale. Um, but in recent years, we have started speaking about the Gnizot rather than Gnizot because the story is much more complicated. We realize that not if, or not all these pages that we are studying uh, came from that one room in that one synagogue, and maybe there were different collections that moved around and ended up in that synagogue. We lost a very, very large collection uh, in the synagogue with Darsinkal, which became the Filkovich collection, which is a Karite uh, synagogue and, a Kar and mostly Karite connection. So, so I use the word Nizad because we don't just necessarily know where exactly everything came from. There is a recent book by Rebecca Jefferson that does a very interesting story about uh, sort of breaking the old understanding of the Cairo Geniza. Now, the significance of this Geniza, this is important, right? Why is this all important? Is that all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents, about 90% are literary texts, and that gives us a lot of times works that were considered lost. That's how the sort of the Shoya's Schechter discovery came about. Sometimes we had autographs, known works, like, you know, pages of the original uh, sort of drafts of uh, the guy to the perplexed by Maimonides, and, and sometimes a very old version. So, for example, I have a very warm spot in my heart for Al-Zlaya Walayla, Arabian Rites, and we have in the Geniza sometimes the earliest versions of tales that later ended up in Arabian Nights. So, and then the 10% of the other 10% of the documents of the Cairo Geniza are what we call documentary texts. So texts that were written not for prosperity, but for sort of reasons of the here and now. Uh, letters, legal documents, um, shopping lists, just tiny notes, uh, all sorts of scribbles, doodles. <laughs> Basically, almost, not everything, but almost everything that you can think of. And these documents gives us the sort of uh, a view, a very sort of rare and unmatched view into everyday life, you know, um, basically sort of classes that, you know, usually literary texts tell us about the scholars and their sort of royals and so forth. Uh, here we have letters by poor people, we have letters by women, we have um, 
sort of legal documents that tell us about things that you know nobody who write legal codes care about or necessarily goes into details about. And generally speaking, although this has come into question in recent years, um, the Islamic Middle East did not there were definitely archives, uh, but they were not uh, preserved. And we do not have the same amount of, I mean, Egypt is an exception. From Egypt, we have a lot of documentary text, but from elsewhere in the Islamic world, we have much, much, much less. And the Geniza does give us a lot of kind of that sort of, you know, precise um, details and glimpse of life uh, because a lot of the documents are letters. So, you know, they're usually sent, what we have is what is sent to Fustat. So we have letters from Spain and we have letters from Syria and we have letters from Sicily. So so the view is not just kind of that one synagogue in Fustat, but it is what, and you probably will ask me about this later, what Goitan called a Mediterranean society. I was actually thinking you're leading me into that question because exactly. that's exactly what I was going to say. The Mediterranean society that we talk about, the Mediterranean world that Pablo Dom Goitan, who is, I know Schefter's the one that found the Geniza, but I think if you're doing research on the Geniza, um, you, you can't get away from Pablo Dom Goitan. So that's true, but it's also important to understand that Shomodov Goitan is really famous for handling those 10% of documents. And there are other scholars who worked on the you know other 90%, for example, as of Leisha, when it comes to the Piyut, the sort of Jewish liturgy, which is about, what, 30 or 40% of the Geniza? But I just did it. Um, and other scholars. But yes, uh, and, and even in, when it comes to history, there were others, uh, not just Goitan, Man, Banet, who's Goitan's cousin, Sintpa uh, Saf. But what Goitan... I think was particularly important is that he realized the potential beyond the sort of joke, you know, uh, the, the previous uh, important historian uh, to Goitan is Jacob Mann, who was really interested in the sort of the great men of, of sort of medieval Jewish Egypt and Syria. Um, and Goitan was the one who realized the potential beyond the Jewish world. You know, he realized the importance of the Ginaza to understanding the Indian trade. Then in order to understand the Indian trade, basically the trade from India into the Middle East to Egypt, then in order to understand the Indian trade, he said, okay, I have to understand the Mediterranean. And that's why he wrote the sort of Mediterranean society, understanding that the Jews of Egypt were not a Neolithic society, but a, a Mediterranean uh, society. And he basically is the one who did the big synthesis, you know, going through the sort of tens of thousands of documents and giving us a sort of a synthesis of everything. Now, of course, he cast a large shadow. And the generation of Gotan students, who are my teachers, um, held him in, in great awe and respect, both for his personality and for his erudition. Uh, in that sense, Gotan is different from, let's say, someone like Gershon Scholem, who, you know, once Gershon Scholem died, all his students kind of turned on him and sort of just couldn't wait to tear him apart. Gotan is one of those guys who, who was not you know, torn apart because of, you know, everybody recognizes his genius and erudition. It is true that the current generation of scholarships, of, of scholars, you know, has a great respect for God and everything starts with him, but we often, uh, you know, our work is often about correcting or nuancing, uh, famously sort of God and understanding of magic and the irrational or what he considered the irrational. Um, he sort of dismissed uh, the understanding of the Muslim state. This is sort of Marina Rosto important work on sort of understanding that the Muslim state is actually a very important player in Jewish society, not an abalez fair absent figure. And in my own work, I think that um, Goitan had a very sort of, he wanted to find order. He wanted to find things, you know, how did things work? And I often try to think of how things don't work, you know, where <laughs> things fail. Uh, and he was aware of conflicts, but ultimately he had a kind of like an ideal sense of this world. And I often tend to see what is broken, the experiences of, and, and this is also why I turn to women, their experience, gender is all about inequalities of power and gender allows me a prison into, uh, sort of how things might've not necessarily been ideal, how power inequalities play out, um, and the dynamics of power. So I, in my book, I tried to sort of offer a much more 
um, conflicting or, you know, kind of uh, not chaotic, but uh, stressed mm -hmm. uh, sense of realities. Of yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, that you feel that tension there in, in those. So that's a, um, so now that you just said that, you, you're leading into the questions. You don't even need me. We have, let's go into the book itself. Can you give us a little overview? We know who you are. We know who Goikan was. We know the premise of what we're basing it on. Tell us a little in like three sentences. What's the book about? Yeah, if I talk too much. Uh, let me... No, no, no. This is perfect. <laughs> so the book really looks at marital disputes. So it's a kind of a narrow focus on marital disputes between Jews in the 11th, 12th, and half of the 13th century. But more broadly, it is about how ordinary Jews engage with law. Uh, you know, there's a huge literature on Jewish law. I don't tell you, your Talmud and Tosfot uh, and the Mishneh Torah and so forth. But there's actually surprisingly little uh, literature on how Jewish law actually functions for everyday ordinary people. What did it mean? What did Jewish law mean to them? So, um, and what I wanted to do in the book is not to look at sort of you know, there is there is law and there is practice, and practice is sort of incomplete law, or or the shadow. It, practice lies in the shadow. I wanted to uh, sort of understand practice on its own terms, legal practice on its own terms. Uh, what are the dynamics of sort of legal life, uh, legal culture? And as I said before, gender was for me the sort of the key to enter uh, the practice of law because it allows us to think about inequalities of power. And the focus on marital disputes is because disputes are moments of rapture uh, and they bring into the surface a lot of the fundamental tensions in family life. So uh, we don't, because Clifford Garrett told us that we don't study villages, we study in villages. You know, we as anthropologists, um, I think I, I study um, in marital disputes. So I, you know, I, I use the marital disputes in order to understand relationship between husband and wife, economic matters. Uh, issues with in-laws, how does kinship work, how does um, the community work, uh, and so forth. So I kind of, I use the marital, it's about marital strife, but I sort of use that in order to stress out Jewish life in general. And I would assume also you would have to understand law as a concept in itself in order to create this type of a volume. Yes, of course. I mean, I, in order to understand how marital uh, sort of dispute work. You have to understand about you know Jewish family law, how the family is structured, uh, the economic exchanges. You know what is the uh, early marriage payment, what is the late marriage payment. Very confusing. <laughs> well, I tried to explain it. No, you did. This is sorry. It's a somewhat different than what is today, and so people also get kind of um, held back because we use. It. Often the terms are in Arabic. They talk about the Qadam, down and the Mulqad, and it's a bit different, Tosefet, Kuba, and so forth. But once you get into it, it's it's uh, it's quite simple. Maybe the biggest difference is the dowry, the dunya, uh, which um, is uh, in that period was items that usually associated with women and for the women. So it was textiles uh, and jewelry and things that the wife. Uh, sort of kept, you know, unlike money that is given to the husband in order so he can sort of build uh, the new home. Uh, and a lot of the book is about conflicts. So let's, we're going to come back to that, obviously, because that's a bit part of it. But I want to, you mentioned Fustat as being a center. So I want to talk about the significance of Fustat and, uh, and Cairo as it grew into as a viewpoint into the whole region. Because really, like you said, people are sending it in. So you didn't only see law based in Egypt. Did you see the differences between the different communities that they're talking to? Do you see something in that interaction? Because people would send their questions to Fustat. Okay, so, um, yes. Okay, so Fustat is basically the city erected by the Arabs when Egypt was conquered uh, in the 7th century. And then when the Fatimid, I'm not going to go into a whole course on Islamic history, but when the Fatimids, which are this big empire that is ruling uh, during the time period we're speaking, uh, sort of conquered Egypt. They came from North Africa, from Tunisia. Uh, they um, they set up 
Uh, Cairo is the sort of administrative capital, uh, uh, just about three or four kilometers, uh, three fifty kilometers north of Fustat, and then sort of today Fustat is just a uh in Cairo. Now, what is important is that the Cairo the Jews are still living in the old city, <laughs> in the center in and Fustat, and that is the center of life. Um, and but most when it comes to marriage and law, most of what we have is uh, from Fustat. Um, you know, when you're working with sort of merchants, le letters of merchants, you really have the only training, right? You have Sicily and Spain and, and, and Tunisia and then Syria. But when you're working with marriage uh, life, married life, you're, you're, you're more focused into Egypt. And that's why the title of the book has Middle uh, Medieval Egypt. Um, but you also need to remember the differences in Egypt. So you have the sort of Fustat, the urban center. The Jews are you know, mostly urban, but the whole delta uh, of the Nile is in some sense uh, full of, you know, sort of med medium-scale cities, not just on the big city of Alexandria, but also other cities like in Allah, you know, and others. And we don't have the, or we don't have a lot, I mean, somebody should go and collect all the sort of evil documents related from Egyptian towns, but it's, it works somewhat differently. But it's, it's a, I tried to sort of explain it as one system. So often, you have a couple uh, in a town like El Ma'ala, which is uh, several dozens kilometers to the north. And then, you know, if the wife is unhappy with the way that the Jewish judge ruling is going to rule against her in the town of El Ma'ala, she just sort of leaves and goes to Fustat and complains to the court in Fustat. So there's a sort of dynamics where you have the sort of more um, local courts and then uh, people go to the capital, which is Fustat. And, and this is actually remarkable because the Jews are a very small percentage of the population and they maintain a very um, robust uh, legal system of a lot of legal institutions. Now, for example, the Copts, uh, the, the Christians of Egypt, uh, they are probably still the majority. They are what today we think that they're still the majority. And yet we don't have as you know almost any evidence of Christian courts. So in the book, I try to explain or give one uh, a reason for uh, not so much why the Christians don't have a, a, a similar legal system, but why Jews uh, or what is the source of power of the sort of Jewish legal system in Egypt. Um, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell us what the source of the legal. Oh, well, you need to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We can't sell it all right now, but I love the concept of, or I don't know if I love, I think find it fascinating, the concept of running from one city to the next city. It's almost like an appeal system. Is, well, you know. Okay. So, so an important point is that the recent years, there's been a lot of talk about so legal pluralism. Legal pluralism is the sort of, it's actually the usual condition in almost every society in which there's different systems of law uh, in operation. And uh, what I try to do, and then there have been studies of legal pluralism, even within the Geniza, my good friends, Julio Simonson and Marina Rostock, uh, used legal pluralism. What I tried to do is to start, you know, not to conclude that there is legal pluralism, but to start from the assumption or to start with the fact that there is legal pluralism, Jews could go not just to the court in the capital, but the Muslim court. Um, but I also try to find a legal pluralism within the Jewish system. So legal pluralism is not just the fact that you could go to a Muslim court, but that you could go have a response. You can petition ahead of the Jews. You could go to a court. You could go to a, the, cap, the court in the capital. So there is, and even within the court, once you're in the court, you can kind of steer the court to uh, a more compromised solution. You can steer the court in order to have a, a, a decisive ruling. You can, um, so, so, so even within the court, there are different modes of justice in operation. And what I've tried to argue, and this is kind of like on one leg, is that um, the limited power, and I'm not saying that the courts were weak, but they had limited power in the sense that coercive power was within the mass of courts. The limited power of Jewish courts meant that litigants had a much greater role in keeping the legal system working. So the engine that drove the legal system were the choices and decisions 
of the litigants. Unlike today. Today, when you go to a court uh, in Israel, and I think it's in America, there is a very strong sense of protocol. There is, you know, kind of uh, justice has its own kind of rhythm. And here in medieval Egypt, it's really the role and job of the litigants to constantly push a very kind of lazy system that would rather not do anything. Um, and so, but, okay, so, so, so that, so the legal system was, uh, of limited power. So why, why use it? Right. Uh, and I think that people turn to Jewish and, and, but still I'm saying, even though they had all these choices to go to Muslim courts, to go to Muslim, uh, so, uh, muftis, um, they still chose Jewish courts, um, predominantly it was the first court of call because they could use their social capital in these courts. Basically, I use the sort of said term of social embeddedness of the courts. The courts were very, very close. Today, when I go to a rabbinic, I hope never to go to a court in Israel, um, you know, the, the judges are very remote from it. Um, and that I think the experience of most Israelis, both religious uh, and uh, secular. Um, but in medieval Egypt, the circles were much smaller, the networks were much denser, and one could use a lot of social leverage with uh, the judge, especially if you were male. But now you see where the judge... Right, well, that's going to lead me into, like, you talk a lot about the fact that that women did address, and we know, I mean, I've read enough documents also to know that women did address the courts and did give, but they didn't have the same social capital, as you call it, to get... So. Yes, and that's where I think kind of the difference is with Goitain and, and the previous uh, generation, where I felt that they give a somewhat apologetic, or I mean, not apologetic, but a celebratory. Yeah. I mean, Goitain kind of saw the documents and he discovered something amazing, that there are so many women coming to court. And also that's when, when it comes to papyri, that also was a discovery. Look, there are a lot of sources that mention women. There's a lot of legal documents I mentioned. And, and that sort of led him to view women as powerful, women as, um, you know, unabashed, even sort of sometimes uses kind of stereotype of like the loud and, and uh, you know, uh, disturbing women. Um, so, and I reckon, and, and yes, there women appear in court a lot. That doesn't mean necessarily that they are very, very strong. It just means that they have a lot of problems and that they need to, <laughs> uh, and the court is a way of addressing their problems. Um, what I tried to show is that women have some sort of structural issue. I mean, women's power in the court was through their relatives, usually um, your father, your brother, or your husband, or your child. And I've tried to show the structural problems that this uh, dependency on male relatives uh, can bring about to women. And the easiest way to say it is that it's wonderful to have a powerful brother when you're in a marital dispute, because then you will really kind of fight for you or fight for him, his own masculinity against your husband. But it's the worst thing ever if you're in an inheritance dispute, right? And to have a very powerful husband is great if you're in an inheritance dispute with your brother, but really bad if you're in a marital dispute. And also because they were dependent on male um, relatives or, or relationships, age is a huge factor. So basically when you're born, you're really dependent on your father. Later on, you're dependent on your brother and husband. Later on, your child. So the sort of women's lives were structured in a way in which even if... Um, you could be well kind of protected and mustua, kind of covered um, at one point in life and then tragedy happens and it changes. You can also say, okay, that happens to men, male as well, but male have certain sort of capital that stays with them, like wealth, like uh, prestige, like communal position, like um, sort of relationships that they can, uh, in, you know, kind of build in the study hall and in the marketplace and so forth. Women were much more of, of a limited social network and so they were more dependent and therefore um, could fall prey to this these conflicts and changes and disturbances during life. And so those women who were traders themselves or who had their own finances, did you find that they 
did win disputes? Yes, of course. I mean, there are women that, I mean, Goytan gave this most famous example of Waksha, 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 <laughs> uh, that she's, she's the sort of businesswoman. She's engaging in the extramarital affair. She's, she's a very kind of, uh, as a child out of wedlock. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. As a child out of wedlock. Yes. Well, she claims that she married her, uh, lover in a Muslim court or that her legal document is in a Muslim court. Um, of course. She was not the focus of my right. No, no, no. I'm just being other of of a, of a lot of other women uh, and women. Yes, they possess property. They, you know, it's not com- much, much, much listed men, of course. Yeah. Um, usually, also a lot of the uh, women who have property, it's inherited property. Unlike Bursha, you know, it's it's a it's a woman that you get either through your dowry or through your inheritance, and you know, maybe it was my choice, but I focused on the ways in which monetary rights were compromised by both the pressures, um, basically, uh, to, 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 um, uh, to make women relinquish their monetary rights, uh, and also, you know, why they did it. And what I found is that, uh, that, that was a very prominent reality. So, uh, both in. I focused on marriage, so um, both during marriage and during divorce, usually women had to forego what was promised. Um, and then within the marriage, they kept what, or they were at least supported. And that's why you mentioned that uh, most women preferred to stay married and were willing to make substantial sacrifices. Divorce was was a blow uh, for women. Most most examples is that you know um, you find women going to great lengths in order to keep their marriages, relinquishing. Uh, a lot of times, it's not just about relinquishing the money you have; is uh, relinquishing the delayed marriage. And I, I tried try not to get technical, right? But basically, a woman when she's divorced by the husband, she's supposed to get the delayed marriage payment. Now, relinquishing that during the marriage is a huge blow because you know. Um, why would you do it? You're right. only getting that paid when marriage is broken. So why relinquish it already? I mean, if your husband is, I, I, this is something I don't understand. I don't understand how husband explained to their wives why they needed to give up the thing that they would get when they get divorced. Because if you don't plan to divorce me, why should I give it up? And if you are planning to divorce me, why should I give it up? So this is something I don't understand how they explained it. Or what you see is that women did, um, say, okay, you know, husband told women, if you don't decrease your delayed marriage payments from 10 to two or to five, then I'll divorce you. And women would say, okay, I, I decrease. Was there something, and this I'm just thinking now, was there something that said that the man had to keep that amount of money in case of divorce? And then if they relinquish it. Yeah. So, so, so there is a, a Jewish, there is some Jewish law sense, that, not a sense, but all of man's property is under lien. You say lien in English. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, lien. lien. Yeah. Under lien um, to his wife's ketubah. Uh That could be a possibility, but we don't see that often. Kind of strongly. I don't think that that's how they explained it. Uh, yes, certainly there are cases where a woman would relinquish her uh, dowry um in order to help the husband in his sort of economic pursuits. But that is less I focus. I focus more on the more sort of blunt pressure, not on places where the woman kind of, you know, just kind of gave a gift to her husband or was willing to relinquish something in order to help his financial success, which is also her financial success. You know, to right. make the argument stronger, I focused on blunt pressure. <laughs> right. Like you said, the stress in there. So that's good. Um, so I do want to get into one technical term because I thought it was quite interesting. Um, like we said, you need to read the book for most of it. Uh, but the Asabia, um, can you explain that? It's just a concept that I found very interesting and I think other people would too. Okay. So I'll just kind of say in advance, this is basically the task of historians, right? We try, which we learned from anthropology. We seek to understand the webs of meaning that people spin around themselves in order to give life, you know, the sense to their lives. And part of it is to understand sort of important cultural concept. And Asabia is one of them. 
Asabiya is a concept made famous by Ibn Khaldun, the great sort of Muslim historian who operated what, 200 years later. Um, and in his 200 years history, later than then the, the documents of Ligonese. I think he's uh, late fourth century beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and he, in his sort of historical vision, Asabiya is the sort of tribal solidarity that kept the sort of Arabian tribes uh, sort of strong. Uh, when they had faith, and then with the successes of the conquest, they had luxury, they got sort of soft, and new sort of nomadic tribes with strong Asabiya had to come in. Now, it's very interesting to find the term Asabiya in all sort of derivatives um, in Geniza doctrine because that gives us a sense of what Asabiya meant for people in the 11th century and the 12th century. And it's basically solidarity. It's the idea that you should do something for me because of some sort of solidarity that we have. And you can track, this is something that I didn't do in the book, but maybe a future study, I'll publish it. Uh, you know, you can see people use Asabiya as a sort of a kinship term. You, know, you should do this. You should have this solidarity with me because we are related. You should have this solidarity with me because we are all Jews. You should have this solidarity with me because we are from the same town in Sicily. Um, and, but what was interesting for me is to understand how this term is used in the legal world. Okay. So, uh, so how does, as part of the social embeddedness, how do these sort of social relationships, these concepts of uh, solidarity are in play in the legal uh, sort of arena? And this is in addition to other concepts like patronage, like uh, intercession. So I tried to see how these sort of social cultural ideas play out in the world which we think of, you know, we have this idea that law has to be blind, law is a separate realm, uh, and it derives its strength from being separate, right? You have funny wigs, and you have strange rituals in a sort of set-apart uh, halls. Law in this world was very different. It was very much uh, sort of embedded within the social fabric of relationships, but also cultural concepts, like a sabia and patronage and intercession. Yeah, I just, I find it fascinating. So thank you for that. Another, I want to pick up on one more thing. Uh, the story of Sitak Kaun. I'm not going to pronounce that right because I can't do the You said it right, Sitak oh. The lady of her family or the lady of her people. How was that? Noticed. People, uh, people noticed a very interesting phenomenon that a lot of women's names, we don't know if it's their personal names or their sort of uh, kunyas, uh, are names of mastery. So it's all sitel ahal, sitel bait, sitel da, you know, lady of the house, lady of merchants, lady of uh, turbans, lady of everything, except if you are a slave or a slave right. in which you have uh, a playful name like pleasure or musk or also names like butterfly uh, and so forth. So Sipericao is a very was a very interesting case for me because this is a woman who uh, belonged to the sort of upper middle class. Uh, her father was a prominent merchant, um, and she married. And within that same year, she was pressured to relinquish a substantial amount of her dowry or the money that they sold their dowry, and she relinquished a substantial amount of uh, the proceeds. Uh, and then after a year, they fought. She fought with her husband, and her father got the judge to annul her previous relinquishment by uh, saying that a woman who uh, relinquished part of her, you know, monetary rights within the first year of marriage is a fool or a spendthrift, and so we can cancel what she does. I'm not the first one to point this out. It's incredible. Obviously, was the first, but that this actually has a legal basis in Maliki one of the sort of schools of Islam. Oh, but that's not the point for me here. The point for me here, and, and of course, there is no such rule in Jewish law. Right, yeah. Um, uh, but what for me was interesting is that this was for me the most sort of a staggering example of a woman's success, right? Um, the husband is then sort of tries to leave town. The father of the bride uh, puts guards on the city gates. They capture him. They basically shake him for everything that he got. And he leaves the court as the sort of, it's a response from Maimonides, not Pyrogenesa, but a response from Maimonides, uh, responsum. Uh, he leaves the court 
uh, says, you know, kind of naked, <laughs> like a man in out of the bath, basically. Um, and but of course we also, he, you know, the fact that we have the question realizes that you know the story is not over, and he is sort of turning to Maimonides to get. Um, he's opening up the case again. Uh, but for me, it was interesting to see that this most successful, in a sense, marital dispute. Uh, I can't term it success. I can't say that this woman is powerful. Right. Because, um, well, in order to win the money back, she had to declare herself unfit, a fool. A or, or have a man declare her unfit. <laughs> exactly. And and also, we don't know if this is what we wanted. You know, presumably she wanted, uh, I think it's 19 dinars from her husband. Um, but I don't know if she wanted a divorce. And maybe it was not even a marital dispute, but that it was a dispute between her father and her husband. And she was, you know, <laughs> we don't know this, but we have to keep these possibilities in mind. And um, and for me, it kind of raises the whole issue of what is a successful woman, what is a powerful woman. And I was, and it just showed the, you know, the importance of these, of having these social ties. And so I, you know, in the book that the chapter that sort of opens with that, I decided to structure it not by, you know, successful and unsuccessful women, but women who uses family ties versus women who basically uses not family ties but turn into Muslim courts. And that's the sort of the key that I uh, tried to find. Right. Going back to the concept in general, I found it really helpful the way that you structured the chapters in the book. And like you said, like it really made it flow and the themes helped to understand a lot of these concepts that are quite complicated in my mind. Well, I mean, the issue is that, as I said, social historians, we are committed to recovering these of the, the realities of, of, every, of everyday life. So it's, it, and the Geniza documents are so rich with stories that it really is almost a cliche to start with a great story and then kind of start teasing out uh, from that story the, 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 you know, the, the fundamental issues, tensions of society. But the point is uh, that that was important for me to work with Geniza documents and something that I constantly struggle with is the issue of imagination. You know, and how, to what degree am I allowed to imagine the sort of stories and counter stories and other possibilities that may have led to the document that is before me? You know, you could be kind of a more sort of minimalist and say, okay, this is the document that is with it and I stick to it. But that, of course, is we have this expression in Hebrew. I, I, probably there is also in English, looking under the lamp light, you know? Spotlight. Sorry? It's spotlight. The spotlight, yeah. Uh, and But the thing is that we even when you're looking just where the light is shed, you see markings of, you know, the, the body being dragged elsewhere, right? I mean, you have markings that suggest to you that there is a greater story. So, for example, when you have a legal document, sometimes they're very terse. I sit and I'll come and relinquish uh, my delayed marriage gift from 15 to 5 dinars. You want to know the story behind it. And sometimes we do know, sometimes we don't. But you have to use your imagination in order to sort of go beyond the story that the court is telling you. And notice, for example, in another case that I study, that the court says, oh, the troubles of the husband were so difficult for him. Uh, he was of divided heart, right? Because basically he was torn between his wife and his mother and and his sisters. But, you know, only if you sort of say, okay, but how did the wife say? And why doesn't the court says, well, the wife was suffering because she was stuck within a mother-in-law and sisters. And so, so, so you need to have that imagination in order to understand how the narrative is structured in a certain way, which might not the whole story. Right. Like you said, reading it, or you quoted, reading in the period instead of, about the period and that so um and some of the other things I, I think also that make it complicated or challenging is that like you mentioned how many documents there are in the Cairo Geniza you don't know there might be a continuation of the story somewhere else there might be a totally contradictory concept in another part of it yes I think this was even a question that I was asking my PhD defense you know is the discovery of new documents going to change your findings as he liked, they can certainly change our understanding of a specific document. But, you know, uh, I tried to triangulate my argument. So basically, 
you know, I looked at legal documents, I looked at responses, sometimes responses outside of the Geniza, I look at letters, and a, lot, a big important sort of aspect of the argument is that we find these issues in different genres, which to me, I hope, convinces that this is not just a particular view of a certain genre, but the fact that we have a letter that is sheds light on what happens in court, and the fact that we have a, 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 a petition of a woman complaining against what the judge did gives, and then we have a legal doc record, uh, sometimes not of the same cases, but of different cases, allows us to build a full picture. And yes, I would love to have to find, and sometimes we do have like a cluster of documents telling us about, you know, how the sort of uh, the marriage started, how it developed, how the divorce came about, then they remarried. You know, sometimes you can follow a case with several documents. And who knows? We, we always want to find another Geniza. <laughs> well, that's it. You said we have to go and collect them from around, this, at least around Egypt, but even beyond. Um, so let's go back to you a little bit. Thank you for this insight into the book. And we're going to, I hope everybody does read it because it really is a great insight. But let's talk a little bit about your work outside of, your, or I guess within the research as well. You launched a program this year at Hebrew University. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why why you did it? It's not just me. It's it's. Oh. Me. I, I, I headed it for several months and then I passed it on to my great colleague David Gage. But yes, the Hebrew University opened a new master program for Jews of Sephardi and Oriental, basically Gabonstad and Mizrach. This is after many many years in which the Hebrew University was not a leader in this field, and so it's a very important corrective, uh, both uh, to the university and I think to Israeli. As society, um, what makes this program uh, special, I think, is the fact that it's very broadly conceived. Uh, it is within the Jewish history department, but we have built it in a way that sort of forces the student to take classes from all sorts of departments, so music, art, anthropology, uh, whatever, uh, sociology, of course, uh, Arabic, Middle East, uh, so trying to sort of break down barriers and institutional issues, which I'm already with. Um, that's one part. And also the fact that it's not geared about just 19th and 20th century Jews in the Middle East, but it has this long historical uh, sort of background. So you can have medieval, you can have early modern Jews, you can have modern, and also within the state of Israel or North America, South America, uh, you know, Sephardi Jews and, and Zafi Jews do uh, all sorts of places, uh, both in the Middle Ages and in the modern period. Uh, and so this is the first year. Uh, it's been, I think, very successful. We have some 11 or 12 students. Uh, recently, they also went, I couldn't join, but they went to a trip, a 10-day trip to Morocco, which was extremely successful. And we hope to continue such uh, sort of opportunities and it also comes with a very nice scholarship so if any of you are interested especially the young ones uh it's a master program and we really hope that it will continue we give a very generous scholarship because the university believes that this is a very important field that has a lot of potential for further growth there's both in the medieval period and at the modern period but so that's yeah. the program and that was huge. And the reason I want to make sure is because from the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience, we think that is so important because we need more of these scholars out there and people. So make sure to continue to follow both of us uh, at the New Books Network. We always like to know, what are you working on next? Okay. So as I said, I tried to leave the court, but the court doesn't leave me. <laughs> so I have a big project on this, basically, again, focusing now on men on the world of a 12th century court clerk, basically the most important court clerk. Or more One than clerk. Active. What? One clerk. One clerk who has more than a thousand legal documents that I've sort of managed to collect uh, from him. And we have also about almost 200 letters from him in his circle. So it's the idea is to do like a world of this one court clerk. And what's interesting about him is that he's he's a middleman. He connects because, I mean, on one hand, he belongs to the elite. On the one hand, other hand, he's a court clerk and he gives legal advice and legal services to a lot of people. He copy, he writes letters for women. He writes all sorts of things. So it's a, also uh, he copies literary texts. So that's one project. Another project, as I said, I'm interested in literature 
I work on with my good friend Guy Rongilbois on a very interesting poem uh, written in Arabic but in Hebrew letters that takes pride in the Jewish tradition, but it's found as an Arabic one, poem of boasting. So it's a it's a sort of we are boasting in the Jewish tradition in the Arabian fashion. So in a sense, the Jewish tradition is being Arabized, Islamicized, uh, the Arab tradition of poetry and sort of is, is being Judaized because it's injected with sort of Jewish issues. So it, it, it and it almost everything, all, almost all the pride that it takes are actually things that it finds in the Quran and in Ekesus and Anbiya. These are the stories of the prophets in Islam. So in a sense, it's a polemical poem, but one that is actually uh, saturated with Islamic uh, Arabic uh, features, and we think that this is a fascinating poem. Um, and what I hope to do in the future, and I, I'm sort of I'm working on these things, but in the future it might be a book, is about masculinities. So what did it mean to be a, a Jewish man in the medieval Islamic world? And my sort of working thesis is that is what I call the masculinity of belonging. So basically, being man didn't mean to dominate somebody else. It didn't mean necessarily, you know, to beat him in battle or beat him in a university dispute. But um, you know, ha- being a part of a network and standing up to the sort of obligations uh, expected of a man within these networks of relationships. So if it's protecting your wife or sister, if it's aiding uh, your fellow merchants, or uh, being engaged in literary exchanges uh, with network of scholars. And I think this sort of idea of a masculine blogging is, will be a useful thing. So interesting, and I'm so excited to continue to read these, uh, and even just the first two, I think. So we have a lot to talk about in the future. Thank you so much. We have been Thank speaking with Dr. Oded Singer. That is a new book, Living with the Law, and a Gender and Community Among the Jews of Medieval Egypt, the University of Pennsylvania Press, 2023. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much.